John Bagnuolo is a highly qualified PhD in human nutrition and food science, whose hands-on approach and dedication to good health have led him from veganism to wholly embracing the paleo and low-carb lifestyle. His holistic methods get results and will most likely help you too. Here's his story. Good morning, John, and welcome to the Low Carb Paleo Show. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Mark. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you, Alan. I trust you both are suitably wonderful as well. I am. Thanks. I'm trying to. Trying to. I'm still working on it. You're very trying, Alan. So I've, so I've been told. Yes. Yeah, John, uh, your friend Robin Gentry, which we interviewed uh, a few weeks ago, suggested we talk to you and uh, we're going to finally meet, get to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad we're together today. On your background, um, can you tell us your story and how you came to be a doctor in human nutrition and food science? Sure. I uh, embarked on this about 25 years ago, this career. I um, initially got a master's in public health and nutrition and minored in exercise physiology and started to work in a clinical setting. Uh, I've worked in a variety of places um, from uh, sports and fitness type spa environments to, to you know, outpatient centers and over the years I've really tried to continue the quest for what is you know what is really the best nutritional approach to not only health but to optimal fitness and performance and then I, I, I went back to school and I got a PhD in uh, human nutrition and food science and I, I graduated with that PhD in 2003 and I taught at uh, a couple different universities uh, and most recently have come to serve as director of nutrition for Robin, uh, Robin McGee's company, Functional Formularies, who make, uh, you know, make wonderful uh, products that are designed for a variety of, of people in different, different parts of life. Good. Um, <clears throat> about Liquid Hope, which is the name of that product, um, can you tell us how you came to help Robin? Yeah, well, I, you know, I've helped more with the, I think, with the more recent uh, products or recipes. She'd already had uh, Liquid Hope up and running when I came on board. Now my role as Director of Nutrition is to answer questions primarily from physicians and other health professionals, uh, Alan, who, who question the role of a whole food, you know, product or formula for the critically ill. Uh, the, the current... Uh, the current protocol right now for someone who needs to be tube fed or is in a critical condition is to be fed a commercial formula, which is largely made up of, uh, you know, highly refined, high sugar based ingredients, whether it be corn syrup or maltodextrin or something like that. So our product is very, very different in the fact that it's made, uh, you know, with things like olive oil, almonds, vegetables. Uh, it's, it's really questioned because it is such an outlier when you look at what is served people in a, in a you know, critical care unit or in those types of conditions. So one of my major roles is to answer questions and to help people understand that, you know, there are certain aspects of it that are highly beneficial. And we're starting to see that in a clinical trial that's been going on uh, here in the States. So, but for the other products that I have uh, worked on here for functional formularies, one of my big goals, Alan, has been to try to increase the percentage of fat that are in these products and to get that uh, percentage as high as possible and to make it, you know, acceptable to the market and to health professionals and, of course, most importantly, to the individuals that will use the products and that need it. Right. Um, you know, of course, as a chef and nutritionist, I can't even imagine why would anybody question 
uh, the, uh, using real food in liquid form compared to genetically engineered chemical products, liquid products to supposedly help people get uh, or stay healthy or get better. Uh, what do you tell people uh, when you, doctors, when you, you talk about this? I mean, that is so obvious to me, I just don't understand it. Well, I think it's, you know, I think it's obvious to a lot of us, especially those of us who maybe have had the good fortune, Alan, of not being trained uh, in a system that, unfortunately, the curriculum is mandated by, you know, big pharma, uh, by the food industry. It's, it's really a, an, an interesting, when you take a look at what is being taught in medical schools, as well as to registered dietitians and any area of medicine, Whole foods uh, nutrition, not to go any further than that, forget about, you know, a paleo type approach. It's just not part of the curriculum. You know, what has been taught is that, you know, treatment should, should be based off of highly refined, hypoallergenic, uh, you know, formulas that are more like chemical cocktails or drugs than they are like foods. And, you know, I think my initial response to people that question uh, a food that is based on vegetables and things like almond butter. My question to these individuals is always first and foremost, well, you know, if you really had your wishes for a patient um, that was going to be fed something by, let's say, your hospital or your institution, you know, what would you want that menu to look like? Would you want it to be casein and corn syrup solids and canola oil? Would you want it to be that, that plate that they received in their hospital room would you want it to be little vials or glasses of all these highly refined, pro-inflammatory, hyperglycemic ingredients? Or would you want them to receive a plate that had uh, almonds, kale, uh, olive oil, and things like that on it? And, you know, sometimes people give me a very puzzled look as though to say with that, with the look they give me, you know, wow, I've never thought about it like that. Um, mm -hmm. Others will... And I think a lot of individuals, Alan, are already beyond the sway of reasonable argument that they have been so uh, indoctrinated into thinking about foods as uh, micronutrients and being highly refined that they will say, yeah, but, you know, this is a hospital room and a critical care unit. You know, we need things to be completely controlled and accounted for. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a process for some individuals to, uh, to step out of their belief or dogma that you know, food has to come, up, come in a can and it has to be made of you know, 40 or 50 highly refined artificial ingredients that, <laughs> that it is acceptable for people to have fiber and to have whole food ingredients, although highly blenderized so that they'll work in a tube feeding system. It, it sometimes is a process for people to leave that, uh, how entrenched they are in their way of thinking. Right. But you know, a, a simple example is uh, everybody knows that chicken soup is good when you get sick. So that's right. Uh, you know, I mean, the palate is so obvious. Why did why can accept the, the the principle that good quality, healthy, organic food in liquid form is going to get the patients a lot better and and healthier? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, Regarding the, the higher amount of fat, that you must have uh, people screaming at you about this because uh, that's a big no-no in, uh, in the current, even the current nutrition environment. Like fat is still the enemy, even though it's been debunked a long time ago. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is slowly but surely being vindicated as less of a culprit by 
some of the most conservative uh, nutritionists and, and physicians, for instance. But, but so there's, there are signs of hope, Alan, but I, you know, I would say that it is one of the biggest walls that I run up against, not only in, in the education that I try to provide from our company through webinars and programs like that, and it's certainly what I teach in all of the programs that I offer around the country. I, I try to get people to look at, you know, at least 50% of energy coming from fat as a good starting point. And I think some individuals need even more than that, whether it's 60 or 70% or it's a full-blown ketogenic diet, I think really depends on the individual and where they're at with their health. Um, but, you know, it's a major limitation. Uh, our, our current food policy here in the United States, it's, you know, the USDA sets forth guidelines that our products have to meet. And we have the fat in our current formulas that are offered to people who are often in a critical care situation, you know, we have those as high as they can be at 38% of calories coming from fat. And that fat is from olive oil and, and from things like almonds and flax oil. It's not from um, butter or coconut oil like I would, I would wish. Um, yeah. Again, a lot of that has to do with the criteria that we have to meet in the system that we have to operate within. But it is a major, major uh, point of question, as, as you indicate, Alan, with your comments. It's, it's one of the biggest oppositions that I run up against is, well, you know, why is it you have, you know, so much of your calories coming from olive oil and things like that? And I, you know, I really try to take people as far back as I can, Alan, in the limited time that I have with them and explain to them from an anthropological perspective, you know, from who we are as human beings, how we've evolved. The human experience has up until very recently been a high-fat, uh, low-carb experience. And most people are just completely unaware of that. When they take a look at what they think a natural human diet is, a lot of people think whole grains and lots of fruit. And, and I try to you know, share with them the evidence, which there is an enormous amount, that that is not the human experience by and large. That would be the last few thousand years, really only the last couple hundred years if, we, if we're looking globally. By and large, our ancestors survived on very high fat, very low carb diets for most of the year. And that is when you take a look at our genetics, when you take a look at our ability to regulate blood sugar um, and all of the different challenges that we're now being faced with as people look at the epidemics in insulin resistance and all of the different diseases that are tied to that, you know, some people are starting to wake up, but, um, you know, it's, it's a major, to go, to go back to your initial question, Alan, it's a major part of my role as director of nutrition. Uh, and in all the programs I offer is I, I want people to look much, much more favorably at at least 50% of energy coming from fat if they can. It, it, for some people, it's hard for them to wrap their heads around that because they've been so brainwashed by government efforts here in the United States for the last four or five decades to go low fat, low fat. But as we all know, where has that gotten us? We have higher rates of, you know, metabolic syndrome than ever before. And, and we see that the, you know, the, whether it's obesity or, you know, diabetes or high blood pressure, heart disease, things are clearly going in the wrong direction. We need to get much, much, uh, we need to get back to that ancestral diet as, as, as much as we can. Right. Good. Uh, and a little story on the side. Uh, my uh, lady friend is still shocked that you know would be eating a croissant and uh, would cut it in half and then I put put added butter on top of it. Yeah. yeah. With jam, it's like there's already butter in that croissant. Why do you need to add more? I said because I like it that way and it's good for me. And uh, she just she's horrified. You know, she think I'm gonna die from a heart attack right in front of her. 
but then I show her my numbers, my results from um, you know my yearly uh, physical um, test, and um, I'm fine. You know, the other day I, I had my blood pressure done, and the the lady was surprised at my age. My blood pressure is just great. You know, yeah. so this this is another example of how people have been brainwashed basically for the past you know, like you say, 40 years uh, by, by the industry and uh, that is the food industry and also the quote-unquote medical establishment that fat was bad for us. So we need yeah. to wake up to that, that good quality fat, not all these processed, uh, highly processed fats like, you know, commercial oils, canola oil and, and all this, but the, the good quality grass-fed butter, uh, like you say, olive oil, uh, all sorts of uh, seed oil, good quality seed oil. That's very important for us and our health. Yeah. Now, Alan, is is this lady friend of yours? Is she familiar with what's referred to as the French paradox? She is familiar. She actually lived in France for a couple of years, uh, but I don't think she can wrap her head around it. Yeah. It's it's yeah. Um, it's, it's a, a stretch for her, definitely. Sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, I, I, I read that you advocate health prevention, which is one of my big, you know, uh, uh, fight personally, because uh, coming from France, the French government, because the, the health system is socialized, the French government is trying very hard to educate people to live better, eat better, exercise, and uh, so that they don't have to pay on the back end, they don't have to pay so much for you know, people being sick. So can you give us your take on that? Absolutely. I think it starts with a uh, less grain, more fat, uh, more high-quality animal product nutritional approach. I think it also requires daily walking and strength training. And then from a, a mental perspective, I think people need to have, whether it be meditation or some other practice that keeps them in the present, not in the future, in the past. I mean, for me, that's the trilogy of health prevention. It's mind, body, spirit, and I think people need to move daily, and I think they need a combination of movements that require some cardiovascular effort as well as strength training, which is, you know, that's really the body's organ reserve. If you take a look at the skeletal muscular system, if you don't build your metabolic machinery, you start to lose various aspects that are important for quality of life, but also very important for our endocrine system and for us to feel good on a daily basis. So movement, uh, again, a higher fat, low grain. I, I don't you know, and I don't think it always has to be extremely low-carb, but I think people need to limit their carbohydrates to things like root vegetables and modest to low quantities of fruit. Um, but I think getting off of grain and especially getting off of flour and flour-based products is one of the most important things people could adopt from a, a preventative approach. And then, again, to get back to the importance of mental health, I, I think too many people are always plugged in, are always connected, and are multitasking, right? They're taking a call while they're, you know, answering, you know, you know, emails, and they're trying to navigate something else all at the same time. And you know, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a natural experience for the human brain. So, you know, I, I come at it from all three perspectives: mind, body, spirit. I think people need to be, you know, need to be present at least for at least for a, a modest, a short period of time every day. And that doesn't have to be meditation. That could be, you know, someone being out in nature or going for a hike and just really being unplugged. I think it's, it's every bit as important as what we eat and how we move. Yeah, uh, one another very dangerous uh, way of uh, multitasking is driving and eating or texting or calling and 
Yeah. And that's one of the things that drives me crazy. Um, and that's very anti-French. I mean, the, the one thing that I've loved about my time in, in France and in other areas of the world, not just France, is that people enjoy food, but they give food so much respect that they would never eat that wonderful food or that quality meal while they were driving or, or trying to conduct business. So, I, you know, that's something I yeah. really admire. I have another example of that, um, and, and it's a constant source of argument with my son and my my lady friend is that there's a chain of uh, movie theaters in this uh, town in Austin that basically allows you to eat while you're watching a movie, mm. right? So you, you have waiters coming. So it's set up, uh, it's very well set up, but you have waiters coming and take your orders and then uh, during the commercials and then the movie starts and then they bring you food and you start munching. So you have people munching right next to you or in front of you or something. And meanwhile, they don't pay attention to the movie. Yeah. So my position has always been, okay, either you're here to watch a movie and respect the movie and the actors and, uh, and you know, the writers and so on and so forth, or you come to respect the food and enjoy the food. You can't have both at the same time. And this, this um, bad habit of multitasking is really not allowing you to focus on, on the moment or what either... Um, spending time with a loved one, uh, you know, how many people do you see on their cell phone while they're in company, okay? That's a good example. Uh, not enjoying the food the way they should be or not enjoying a movie or whatever activity they do, if they do more than once at the same time, then there's no, they're not in the moment. They're constantly all over the place. Absolutely. Very symbolic of the world we live in, that people are, really shortchanging the richness of two or three experiences by trying to conduct them all at the same time. Yeah, and um, I think we, to a certain extent, we've been brainwashed to doing that too. It's, uh, you know, this, this world is in hyperspeed all the time. You, you're supposed to be, uh, how many articles I've seen that actually advocate for you to be multitasking? Yeah. Or, or you know, being able, I mean, moms are known to be multitasking when your mom you have to be able to do two or three things at the same time but besides that in your personal life I don't think it's necessary uh, to be constantly on you know there's a time for sleep there's uh, there's no time to do Facebook when it's midnight right. you know it's time to sleep get some rest and allow your body to regenerate um, speaking of diets uh, how would you describe your current diet uh, my current diet is centered around, again, high-fat foods, and those fats are butter, olive oil, a variety of coconut products that range from dried coconut flakes to uh, coconut oil, high-quality coconut oil. And all of those three are, one of those, I should say, is present at almost every meal. The rest of the meals are made up around either oily fish, eggs, grass-fed meat, um, limited amounts of poultry, you know, for a variety of reasons and lots of green leafy vegetables. And most of the carbohydrates in, in, my, in my normal dietary habits are made up of things like sweet potatoes, yams, uh, white potatoes, squash, uh, certainly carrots and things like that. We do, my family does eat buckwheat and rice in modest quantities. Uh, I have three young boys and those are, I guess, the grains that I feel are most compatible with human physiology, again, for a variety of reasons. But overall, our, our diet is, 50 to 60% fat. Some days it's much more than that. And we have animal protein 
uh, at all three meals. Uh, you know, and that's very different than what I would have uh, anticipated, Alan. If you were to go back 25 years and look at how I ate and what my philosophy was around nutrition, um, animal protein would have been at one meal at most. Uh, and it's, it's been an evolution for me, and I'm at a point now where whether it's grass-fed meat or really high-quality, high-fat, grass-fed, uh, you know, yogurt and other dairy products. And, and, you know, again, it doesn't have to be yogurt. It could be kefir. It could be butter. It could be really high-quality cheese. Um, those are the staples of my diet. And the things that I absolutely don't eat are I don't eat most of your high-sugar fruits, things like bananas. I, I just don't eat. Um, I don't eat any member of the wheat or oat or rye family. You're those are all very traditional uh, members of small seeded grasses. Again, rice is the only grain, and buckwheat isn't really a grain, but those are the only grain-like foods that, uh, that I have with any regularity. And I try to stay away from foods that have very high omega-6 uh, fatty acid contents. And that's one of the reasons I limit poultry to uh, you know, special occasions, and my family certainly enjoys chicken. We've raised chickens in the past on our farm, but that's really a blueprint for how we eat and what I look at now as being you know, the, the best fit for many humans, maybe not all, but for most. Right. It sounds very similar to my diet. The, the main difference is my fat content is not as high. Uh, I do use coconut uh, oil for my eggs in the morning, so I have protein two meals mm -hmm. out of three, and I tend to eat very, very light in, uh, in the evenings. And I think that's great. I, I think that's a really good blueprint as well. I, I have pretty high protein requirements, Alan, because of the amount of physical work that I do. Uh, right. So when I only eat protein at two of my three meals, I lose the muscle mass that I, that I work. I, I work pretty hard to maintain. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. In my case, because I don't have the high requirement, the same requirements, and I'm pretty much sitting all day long, so I have to... I, I reduced the carb intakes and I, uh, I, I cut down one of the protein at night. I basically eat uh, uh, fruits and just uh, little cheese fruits and that's about it. I mean, you could argue that cheese is protein, but it's not like what people think of as a meat. Right. Okay, so let's talk supplements. Uh, do you recommend, do you use and recommend supplementation and which one and why? Absolutely. I, I recommend supplementation because I, I think there are several indicators that most of the varieties of vegetables, and, and, and the same would be true with fruit, uh, that we buy now at a commercial grocery store are not going to have the same levels of micronutrients that they had in them 30 or 40 or certainly 50 years ago. There's some really good evidence by people like Don Davis at the University of Texas uh, Anne-Marie Meyer in England, who have, who have devoted their lives to looking at the micronutrient density of plants and how it's been diluted, mostly through the development of modern cultivars. These are varieties of fruits and vegetables that will have long shelf lives that will uh, transport well and resist bruising and maybe have a higher sugar content and things like that. You know, so for that reason and for the fact that many of us, even if we eat three fairly solid meals a day, won't get everything that we really need to support our physiology. So for those reasons, I, I highly recommend trace mineral supplementation. And, and, and also in the case of things like magnesium, some minerals, uh, those are going to be magnesium, zinc, selenium, and iodine. I'm a big fan of those four uh, mm -hmm. because I think they're just so important for supporting various aspects of our health. I also recommend fat-soluble vitamins A, D, and K. 
if people eat lots of uh, goat cheese or sheep's milk cheese or eat lots of high-quality yogurts, I think they may be able to uh, avoid having to take vitamin K2, but I think vitamin K2 is a very, very important nutrient that the evidence is clear in showing most people living in the industrialized world don't get enough. And you know, part of that, Alan, is because people have started to shun over the last couple decades high fat dairy products. When you take a look at studies like the Rotterdam study, which was done in 2004, that Rotterdam study should be something that everybody is familiar with because it showed those individuals, and they looked at like, you know, 4,000 individuals in the Netherlands, the individuals who consumed more than 40 micrograms of K2 a day, they were at the absolute lowest risk for heart disease, all types of heart disease, um, and had the type of health that I think we're all looking for, whereas people that didn't eat high-fat dairy products and ate low-fat dairy products, they, you know, they, even though they were, you know, trying to do what they thought was best by choosing low-fat dairy products, they weren't getting the K2, and they're ending up with a calcification of cardiac tissue and ar the artery walls that we really want to avoid. So, again, maybe this is part of that French paradox that whether it's the French or other populations who really enjoy high-fat cheeses, you know, it could be that they're eating less sugar, less carbohydrates, and are being more satisfied with the high-fat dairy product, or maybe it's also because they're getting a lot of this vitamin K2, which is only going to show up in high-fat, grass-fed dairy products. Uh, but for whatever reason, I, I like vitamins A, D, and K as being part of an individual's or a population's supplementation uh, protocol. And the, the levels that I'd recommend would vary. If someone were living, you know, here in the Northeast where I live, they may need to take a significant quantity of vitamin D. And if someone was living in, you know, Florida or Spain, let's say, then they could certainly uh, eliminate vitamin D supplementation as long as they were committed to getting outside for an hour a day and would not wear, you know, sunscreen or sunblock. But those are fat-soluble vitamins, to answer your question, Alan, and minerals and trace minerals, those really serve as the backbone for what I recommend in a supplementation uh, protocol. Right. So to be more specific, what would be a good source of uh, K2? Yeah, the best source of K2 that you can find are going to be uh, fermented, highly fermented foods. Now, they can be from things like kimchi or sauerkraut, fermented vegetables. Uh, fermented soybeans uh, in the form of natto is also an exceptional source of K2. But if people are going to eat dairy products, they really want to have high-quality sheep's milk or goat's milk cheeses, as well as yogurts and kefirs made with, again, either goat's or sheep's milk, as well as... Uh, grass-fed cows. And when it comes to cow's milk, I only recommend that people source dairy products from not only grass-fed animals, but also from Guernsey cows and older breeds of cows, not from Holsteins. I think Holstein cows are part of the reason that dairy products get such a bad rap and have some negative science uh, surrounding them. The Holstein cow produces a type of casein known as A1 beta casein, which is really not compatible with human physiology. When you start to look at the research on A1 beta casein, it is an absolute avoid uh, ingredient. And that's, you know, that's something that really has not been appreciated as it should be until much more recently. Now I think there are more people that are aware of A1 versus A2 casein. But I, I say get your, um, whether it's your raw milk or your you know, cheeses or your yogurts, make sure that's coming from a Guernsey grass-fed cow, and then you're going to get all A2 casein, which is much, much more compatible with human physiology. So again, to answer your question, high-fat dairy products are really where it's at, but the animals need to be grass-fed, which goats and sheep most often are, um, yeah. and, and some cows can be. Yeah.
Yeah, thank you for um, explaining that. Uh, although I have to um, say that I tried nat uh, natto, and it's definitely an acquired taste. <laughs> I would agree. I think that if, uh, if someone grows up with it, it's probably easily acceptable. But for, for many people, having it for the first time, it's a, it's a pretty pungent uh, experience. Yeah, but it's also really uh, good at, at keeping your blood thin. That's Actually, true. it's recommended that if you take a blood thinner, do not eat natto at the same time because yeah. that could... It can, it can yeah. definitely interfere with fibrinogen uh, activity and, and can increase a, an individual's prothrombin time. So you're absolutely right. It's something I would ask someone to, uh, if they were going to you know, in, ingest natto regularly, they'd want to make sure they weren't on Coumadin or another typical blood thinner. Right. Let me share a little treat that I do once in a while. Uh, sourdough bread toasted with grass-fed butter and miso spread all over it as a snack. What do you think? Wow. Yeah, I, I mean, except for the sourdough bread, I like the other two things a lot. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, you, if, if it's uh, naturally sour, you are fermented. Sure. Uh, with, uh, you know, good quality wheat. Yeah. I'm not against cheating once in a while. I no, mean, no. I, I mean, I think there's a time and a place for that. And, and you're absolutely right. Sourdough bread is the best of the best when it's going to come to how you might eat wheat or any member of that family. One thing you might try would be a similar, uh, it's a similar recipe, but instead of buckwheat bread, um, excuse me, instead of your traditional wheat-based bread, you could try bread made with buckwheat flour. Yeah. We have on the weekends, I give our kids buckwheat pancakes, and they're just made with eggs, buckwheat flour, um, really that's it. And then we put on that a heavy, heavy whipping cream and a few raspberries, or we put lots of butter on that. Uh, and, you know, that's a treat as well. So I, I really like that combination. Good, good. Thank you for that, uh, for sharing that. Um, I understand you offer uh, presentation and seminars all over the country. Can you tell us about some coming up? Yeah, sure. So most of my programs, Alan, are centered around uh, helping individuals reclaim their health uh, and understanding that there are a variety of ways, as we, as we briefly discussed earlier, whether it's through physical activity or through the way we eat, uh, the way we interact with others and, and you know, try to really slow down our pace of life and not multitask and things like that. My, my programs are typically immersion type where I ask people to experiment with a higher fat, uh, less grain-based diet in an area where we can hike and, and get out into uh, a variety of environments. I have one coming up this winter in Costa Rica. Uh, it's at a place called the Iguana Lodge, which is on the Pacific on the Osa Peninsula. It's an amazing place right in the rainforest. You've got 10-foot waves out your door uh, on the Pacific. It's just a really incredible place. It's paradise where people eat a totally local diet that is centered around things like high-fat fish and coconuts. Um, we get out for you know, daily exercises on the beach in the morning before it gets too hot. The water's around 80 degrees. It's a great place to go in February, especially if you're from, uh, you're from the Northeast here in the States. Absolutely. And uh, you also have a podcast show called uh, Health Edge. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit what you talk about on your show? Yeah, sure. So myself and uh, one of my colleagues and good friends, Dr. Mark Pettis, who is uh, dean of UMass's medical school. He's associate dean, I should say, of, of uh, University of Massachusetts Medical School. He and I basically cover a variety of topics weekly, and most of the topics revolve around different aspects of lifestyle that modulate or influence human metabolism, whether it's our ability to regulate blood sugar levels, uh, looking at things that influence inflammation processes, how the brain ages, uh, a variety of topics, but we cover 
everything from, you know, who should maybe experiment with a ketogenic diet, which again, if our listeners are not feeling familiar with a full-blown ketogenic diet, that's where about 85% of calories come from fat and around 10% comes from protein and only 5% from carbohydrates. You know, that's a regular topic that we, that we delve into. Um, but, you know, it's a variety of topics, Alan, and it's a lot of fun. And, and, and Mark and I just have a good time with it. We, you know, he and I are both very, very passionate about changing the way modern medicine is, is taking place currently and really trying to push for preventative medicine and a true definition of preventative medicine, a true definition, not, you know, not one that, you know, says there's no such thing as good food or bad food. You can eat everything in moderation. That's just not the case. And unfortunately, you know, that's kind of what's being pushed is that you can, you can eat fast food once a day or you can drink soft drinks and still be in good health. And that, you know, that's just not the case. So Mark and I, we don't pull any punches. You know, we really just cite the facts. We, we really like to dive, dive into research papers and help, um, help people, our listeners understand, you know, what it is that's being shown in some of these latest investigations that we hope open the eyes of people that they can reclaim their health. Sounds great. Um, actually, Mark, uh, you may want to put, add that to your list of shows to listen to. Indeed. Indeed, indeed. One thing I wanted to uh, ask you about is um, I am a strong believer in food as medicine. Mm. So instead of food making you sick, use foods as a way to reverse certain um, you know, disease or, or health conditions. So can you tell us what you think about this? I, I couldn't agree more, Alan. I actually serve as a core faculty member and have since 1999 for a nonprofit organization uh, here in the States out of Washington, D.C., which is, it's the center for mind-body medicine, but we offer a program called Food is Medicine, primarily targeting physicians and other health professionals twice a year. I've got one coming up here in two weeks uh, in, in Massachusetts. It's, you know, typically there's 300 or 400 physicians that attend from all over the world, really. And our whole, uh, our whole effort, Alan, is to help physicians understand what you just what you just pointed out is that food can be our greatest medicine and has been used right over the last couple thousand years. You go back to the work of Hippocrates and, and some really early uh, physicians. There are you know, a variety of ways in which whether you're looking at herbs or you're looking at uh, something that is a very uh, you know, macronutrient uh, altered diet like a ketogenic diet or whether you're looking at particular, you know, particular foods like my, my PhD work, Alan, was actually on the blueberry and we showed that you know, when you fed blueberries to women for just 30 days, that a variety of markers that reflect the amount of inflammation in a woman's body, you know, they, they really drop off the table, which is a good thing that your infl inflammatory markers drop uh, markedly in just a very short period of time with 100 grams of blueberries a day. Now, that's an example of where food can serve as medicine. And the blueberry isn't, you know, isn't really that unique. I mean, you can show the same thing with uh, with spinach, you can show the same thing with anything from garlic to horseradish to olive oil. So, you know, I think that most foods, if they're whole and they're grown the right way uh, and there's care taken not only in the growing process, but also, as you know, as a chef in the way those foods are prepared and, 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 and cooked or, or otherwise, right. you know, all of those things come together with great synergy that allow food to be the most effective and the most holistic medicine that we really have available to us. Right. I'm a big fan of berries, eating berries. Uh, typically, I, uh, I put a bowl of berries and I put some uh, goat yogurt on top of it, mix yeah. it, and that's, that's dessert right there. 
Um, get any better than that, Alan. I'm a, that's the fruit that I eat daily, or berries. And I, yeah, you know, I, I don't think you can go wrong. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I don't eat bananas, and I don't eat um, other you know fruits that are high in their sugar because I think fructose is very damaging. But when you take a look at berries, the upside is incredible, and they have such small amounts of sugar comparatively. Right. A lot of people are not aware that inflammation is the cause of a lot of our disease. And one way to reduce that, those, uh, that inflammation is avoid inflammatory foods, omega-6, mm -hmm. and increase omega-3s and uh, eat foods that will lower the amount of uh, inflammation. Uh, what would be, uh, besides berry, what would be other choices for you? Well, to it, it, yeah, it would be very difficult, Alan, to ignore turmeric as maybe, you know, one of the top three or four anti-inflammatory foods that we have available to us, whether it's turmeric or in the case of supplementation, you know, some individuals either they don't cook with turmeric or curry enough and they, they may want to use a, a turmeric based supplement. But I would look at turmeric and cumin as well. Another very common spice in many soups and stir fries. We try to use that in any stir fry that we do uh, as absolute top, shelf choices for anti-inflammatory properties and the berries that you mentioned with raspberries and blackberries um, you know as well as you know in areas of Europe I know people have access to bilberries not so much here in the states uh, right. you know you get black currants are an amazing an amazing anti-inflammatory food that many people are not familiar with right. you've got a wide variety of choices I think the common the common characteristics they all have, Alan, is they typically have very low sugar contents and they have very, very high phytonutrient contents. Those are substances that not only can influence the inflammatory process in the body, but most interestingly, can actually influence gene expression. So most people think, well, I was dealt a bad hand genetically. You know, I had a, a parent with heart disease. I had a grandparent with heart disease. Well, the way genes are expressed are, is going to be a function of lifestyle. And one of the primary ways that we have of really controlling gene expression is not only through, you know, not smoking and making sure that we're physically active, but the foods that we eat day in and day out have an enormous interplay with gene expression. And they can turn bad genes on or off depending on the food we've eaten. And so when you talked about, you know, high omega-6 diets, that's going to really turn bad genes on. When you talk about eating brightly colored berries or the turmeric that we just discussed, those can keep the genes that we don't want to have expressed turned off. So, yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more when it comes to food as medicine. And, and I would say turmeric and berries and most of your, whether it's rosemary or oregano, most of your pungent herbs also have very, very powerful anti-inflammatory properties. Right. Could you remind me the name of the science that's emerging about how we can change our gene expression? Yeah, there's two names. One is epigenetics, right, and the other is nutrigenomics. Like, how do nutrients influence the the genome? Um, and that's like a more a more focused aspect of epigenetics. Epigenetics is everything from lifestyle uh, to our environment. You know, what it is we're exposed to. Like, you know, chem certain chemicals are going to have a very profound role in epigenetics. Uh, but yeah, both in both cases, you're talking about influencing gene expression through some type of change in lifestyle. Right. What, what I talked to my students about such an uh, issue, and uh, we discussed the uh, nature versus nurture. Mm. Uh, my, the way I, I, I present it is like if you're gonna, if you grew up in a family that is a meat and potato family, you're probably gonna end up looking like everybody else in your family, right? But if if 
Yeah, I'll tell you one thing, not to interrupt. I, I'll take a meat and potato family over a um, <laughs> over a, a bread and sugar family. Let's put it that way. That's true, but uh, you get my point. It's like if you if you live and if you grow up in an environment where the food quality is not good, you're gonna end up looking and having probably the same health issues as your Absolutely. the rest of your family, and vice versa. If you let's say you uh, all of a sudden you rebel and you you know, get out of the house and start eating healthy and, uh, you know, pay attention to your health, there's a very strong chance you're going to get a lot healthier than the rest of your family. And I've heard that from some of my students that come from, like, um, uh, you know, uh, Wisconsin or states that are more like, you know, uh, like I said, meat and potatoes. And they say when they change their diet, I mean, they, they completely uh, turn their health around. So, What's your take on that? I couldn't agree more. I mean, I myself am an outlier within my family. Um, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many individuals I've met over the years, Alan, that have had a very similar experience. They have seen what is unfolding within their family in terms of conditions and diseases, and they said, look, I don't want this. And so they adopted a different lifestyle, whether that was more exercise or a combination of more exercise and really cleaning up their diet. There's, yeah, there's, a, you know, I think an incredible – a number of people out there who are going to really relate to this experience. So you're absolutely right. I, I think we have so much choice as individuals to break away from the current trajectory that our health or our life is on um, that, you know, most people should. If someone sees that they have a strong family history of anything, uh, they should really question what it is that their ancestors immediately have been doing and try to do something differently. Right, and it's uh, a lot of people, and, and this is one thing that infuriates me, is when they, they are told by the doctor, well, you know, your family history is such and such, so you're gonna, probably going to have the same problem, mm. uh, you know, cancer, but uh, what's her name? The actress that had her breast uh, cut off just because she had a chance or risk. Sure. That's completely, completely uncalled for. Yeah. Um, in the case like you and I, we probably had some kind of a trigger. In my case, my trigger was my dad died of cancer, and I'll be damned if I'm going to die of cancer. So I do everything in my power to do everything, keep everything in connection with avoiding cancer. Absolutely. So uh, can you tell us your, exp your experience with that? Yeah, sure. I mean, when I was 13, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And in the years just before that, I'd seen both of my grandfathers die of things that were, you know, certainly lifestyle, dietary based. And I said to myself, again, as a young, as a teenager, I said, you know, this is not going to be me. And I've done everything I can in terms of, you know, staying active and staying fit and, you know, eating at what at various aspects of my career have been different philosophies around nutrition, but I've been very, very nutrition focused since those events happened. And, you know, I certainly eat meat now and I didn't eat meat when I was in my early 20s because I thought that a, you know, vegetarian or plant-based diet was the way to go. And that's, that's changed radically in the last five to 10 years. Nevertheless, I've been focused on nutrition and I've never eaten lots of sugar. I've never used highly refined vegetable oils. I've never eaten fast food. Um, and so, you know, that's a pretty good foundation, I think, for most of us to start with, whether we're plant-based or we're, you know, more paleo. You know, those things, I think, are important, you know, differentiating points. But I think we should all start out questioning, you know, should I eat this meal that was cooked in, 
you know, canola oil? Should I drink this beverage that's, you know, 75% sugar? When you eliminate those things, it goes a long way. And so I, I absolutely had life events with loved ones, as you indicated, Alan, at a, in an early time in my life that said, you know, I don't, I don't want this to happen to me. And, and you know, I, I want to also, and not only, I think it's an important point to raise. I think most people look at people that are very progressive with how they live their life in terms of being proactive and trying to stay fit and healthy. Some people, unfortunately, Alan, and I, you know, I'm always disappointed to hear this, will say to me, well, you know, we're all going to die of something. You know, I, I don't live the way I do because I want to live forever. I accept the aging process and I, you know, I accept death that, you know, whether it's 80 years or 90 years or 100 years, so I live the way I do because I feel like I experience a quality of life that is very different than I would experience if I ate whatever the hell I wanted to and I sat around all the time. I just wouldn't feel good. But I have the yeah. ability to, uh, you know, to do a lot of things physically um, through the way I live my life. And I feel that my mind and mentally I'm much sharper because I live the way I do my life. So I, and I think quality, is an quality of life is a really important part of this discussion. And it, it, oftentimes people miss the mark when they start talking about, well, you know, I'm not doing this to live forever. And I, I say to them, well, neither am I. Right. And this is a very important point because what's the point of living until 100 years old when you have to take 20 different medicines every day just to survive? Yeah, and, exactly. and, and you live a miserable life. So my point has always been, would you rather eat good, tasty, healthy food and live a good, healthy life now, or would you rather eat crap and eventually pay all that money out to doctors, pharmaceutical companies, and hospitals, and, and live a miserable life in the process? I mean, the choice is pretty obvious to me. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Tim, I'm glad we agree on that. So uh, we should, uh, <laughs> we should um, I don't know, uh, talk some more, uh, maybe uh, bring you back for some more discussions. That'd be great, Alan. I'd, I'd like that. I'm going to come straight in. There's, there's several things that piqued my interest quite intently. The first one I want to go back to is, is your holistic approach to uh, health and longevity and sort of living a great life. Mm. What was it that switched you from really just a physical um, way of looking at health onto sort of a more holistic approach. When you say holistic, Mark, you're referring to the importance of not only body, but mind and spirit? Mind, spirit, yeah, everything like that. You know, everything that's not physical, if you prefer. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I would say that travel in my time that I've spent with a variety of different populations in different areas of the world, very, very radically different areas of the world, from the Himalayas to uh, the tropical rainforest and areas of uh, South America. You know, I found, Mark, that there is an incredible, incredible amount of richness to life that is not experienced by people who cannot unplug or as, you know, as, as Alan and I were discussing earlier, cannot let go of that constant uh, stimulation they receive through multitasking and, uh, you know, being in a variety of different places at the same time. So in my time that I've spent with areas of the world where populations are forced because of geographical barriers or the remoteness of where they lived, I've seen that richness or deepness in life that, that I want and that I really feel good when I experience. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's good. So you've, you've had these experiences with uh, different peoples who have a much more, let's say, spiritual outlook on life. 
how has that affected the way you live your life? Absolutely. Um, you know, we live in here in Vermont within the states, and we live in an area that is very remote, surrounded by national forests. Uh, I try to spend a certain amount of time out in nature every day. And while I don't sit necessarily and meditate as, you know, I know many people do and get incredible benefits from, you know, my, my meditation is to go out in nature, you know, not to be on a cell phone or not to be plugged in and to really, you know, be immersed in that, in that environment where you're, you're really, you're present, you know, and, and I got that earlier in life through things like rock climbing and, and spending time in some, you know, more harsh environments where you're forced to be present, where you're not really allowed the luxury of multitasking because if your brain is in a different place when you're in that activity, you know, you, you, you'll pay the price. So, you know, that's really been one of the major uh, emphasis that I place on how I live my life is every day I think it's important for myself, but I also try to get, you know, do this for my family. I try to get our family, um, you know, not always together, but, you know, maybe my kids, I, you know, I'd want them to get out in, in nature and go for a walk. I, I think we all need time outdoors, in nature, in the sunshine if possible, you know, where we are not going to be distracted by the, the various uh the various things that pull us away from, as we talked about, that richness in life. So, I, you know, I try to get out in nature every day for a, a good amount of time, whether it's for a walk or a, a hike or a, a mountain bike ride. Excellent. Now, how do you bring, if you like, that, that holistic approach into, this, into the teachings that you pass on to others? Well, I say to people, because and I know that I'm sure both you and Alan have heard this, many people tell me uh, and have told me over the time in my clinical experience when I, when I you know, counsel people one-on-one. -on -one. They would say to me, you know, John, I don't have the time to exercise. I don't have the time um, to cook my meals. And I'll say to them, you know, if you don't have the time to cook a meal, if you don't have the time to go for a walk, I think you really need to reevaluate your life and ask yourself, you know, what is this experience that we call life? What's it all about? And, you know, I think sometimes people get it, right, when they hear that question. But, you know, that's one thing that I really, I will always bring up, Mark, on opening night in any program that I teach is I say to people, think about your life. Think about this concept of balance. Are you spending all of your time uh, in a sympathetic nervous system state where you are in, you know, fight or flight, stress type response? And I think people sometimes, then the, you know, the light starts to come on and they'll say, you know, I never unplug. I never, you know, I never just you know, have a chance to sit, uh, whether it's, you know, in a dark room or it's out in the woods. And, you know, that's, that's an important question that I think people need to ask themselves is, is there balance in my life? Do I have, you know, that, whether it's a moment of time or, or an hour of time, whatever, whatever it's going to take, and it's different for every person, but do they have that experience in life? And if they don't daily, then I think it's a warning light that things are going in the wrong direction. Super. So that, that's something that you'll bring into your, your residential sessions. I know you, you said you've got one coming up in a few weeks' time. Yeah, whether I'm working at a place like Kripalu, which is a yoga and wellness center and has a very strong emphasis on, on spiritual health, mental health, and you know, whether that's through the practice of yoga or, or, again, through meditation, many of the places that I teach or that I have relationships with as an organization, they really emphasize the importance of this. So... It is always integrated where I teach. Excellent. I mean, where can people get details about your retreats? Yeah, I mean, I think that someone could certainly go to uh, the Center for Mind-Body Medicine's uh, website. They could go to Kripalu's website. 
Um, they could they could go to, you know, uh, functional formulary is the company that you know you talked talked to me about earlier in, in this interview. Uh, Robin and I and some of our other uh, members of our advisory board are going to be offering programs called Hope Zones in the coming year. And these Hope Zones are programs that we'll offer in four different locations. Um, from you know the Pacific Northwest in the mountains to the islands in the, in the Caribbean where not only are they beautiful locations for people to get away from it all but our emphasis mark is on helping people reclaim their lives and finding the time to commit to a meditation practice to cooking healthy meals and to getting out uh, in nature or to some other area where they can you know really embark on a fitness program so those programs we're going to advertise through our website on functionalformularies.com. Excellent. You mentioned getting out in nature. And, and earlier you also said that um, when people go out in the sun, they don't wear sunblock. Would you like to tell us a bit more about the sunblock issue? Yeah. I mean, one of the core requirements for the human body is a process known as sulfation. That's where... We, we actually take the sulfate ion, which is sulfur and three oxygens. And as a molecule, it's critical for the human body. It acts as a natural blood thinner, um, so it helps maintain good circulation. It's also really important for our immune system and helping us identify you know, cells within the body that need to be eliminated. And sulfation is hinged to sunlight. And once we interfere with that process, all bets are off. Most people attribute uh, greater sun exposure to higher levels of vitamin D, and I think that that is really limiting uh, the benefits of sunlight. The sunlight goes way beyond just helping us produce vitamin D. It helps us with this critical biochemical process that if you're indoors all day and if you do go out, whether it's to the beach or you go for a walk, you're putting sunblock on, you are stopping that sulfation process, and cholesterol is one of the most valuable carriers of the sulfate anion. Wow. And so in my programs that I teach, I highly emphasize, Mark, I highly emphasize that people get out for at least 30 minutes a day in the sun. And now there are areas in the, you know, for instance, here in the States, when you get north of Richmond, Virginia, which is, you know, more than half of our country, when you get north of that line of latitude, it becomes very, very difficult to have this process unfold like we want it to. Now, in those situations, maybe people, they don't have either have to plan a vacation if they can down to a more southern location or they have to say, you know, I'm resigned to taking a vitamin D supplement and doing what I can. But I, I really rail against an effort to keep people out of the sun. I, I really try to explain to people how that's going in the wrong, dire the wrong direction. And, I, you know, there's some great scientific research to, that we could delve into maybe in a later, later interview by people like Stephanie Seneff, uh, who's at MIT or has been at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I see that you're familiar with her, her, science, or her science, which is phenomenal. And, uh, and other researchers that have shown the, the importance of sulfation and grounding, you know, maintaining some level of contact with the Earth's surface oh. to, to really help circulation and to help us in a variety of ways. These are, these are things I really emphasize in the programs that I teach. Excellent. Now, I'd like to bring you back to the subject of inflammation. Mm. Now, you, you have said that there are a lot of foods that are very anti-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. Would you recommend, let's say, half a dozen that people could, uh, let's go out and say, buy now? Yeah, absolutely. I think adding uh, either turmeric or curry, which in curry, you know, turmeric's a leading ingredient typically. Mm. I think that adding that to a stir-fry made with coconut oil, as, you know, Alan shared his, you know, his typical breakfast, his eggs, 
our eggs cooked in coconut oil. Adding some curry or turmeric to that would be an easy way to add a very, very potent anti-inflammatory substance to your diet on a daily basis. Another easy choice would be, and again, these are going totally in line with things that Alan brought up, adding raspberries, blackberries, or black currants to heavy whipping cream as either your breakfast or a dessert for a meal is also a really easy way to, to add a very potent anti-inflammatory food in the case of berries to your diet. Now, I recommend those berries over things like, I like strawberries a lot, but when you look at berries and the ability to influence inflammation, the smaller the berry, the darker the berry, or the more sour, bitter the berry, as is the case, raspberries, of course, having a little bit of sourness compared to, let's say, strawberries, which are much more sweet. The more sour and the darker the berry, the more anti-inflammatory it's going to be in about nine out of 10 cases. Another really great beverage to add to an anti-inflammatory diet would be either Earl Grey tea or green tea, which many people are familiar with. Now, the best green tea would probably be either matcha or sencha green teas. These are very unique green teas typically produced in Japan that have great clinical evidence that they can turn off markers of inflammation in a very short period of time. In just a few days of drinking green tea, especially those two varieties that I mentioned, you know, people can see a, a marked reduction in inflammation as measured through something like a sedimentation rate, um, which is often called a sed rate, or a C-reactive protein level. So I like green tea, and, but I also like black teas like, you know, an English breakfast blend or Earl Grey has some very unique attributes that, that can go, uh, you know, that extra distance in helping stop inflammation. Um, other foods that are highly anti-inflammatory would be many of your small but in some cases, very pungent greens or herbs. I, I would cite things like cilantro, parsley, or in a less pungent variety, watercress. Those are phenomenal greens when it comes to anti-inflammatory properties. Now, in that same uh, family, other herbs such as, you know, when, when we talk about, you know, the varieties of these things that we can add to our diet, I hope that our listeners are seeing that it doesn't have to be any one of these. There's a lot of choices. Oregano. Uh, thyme. The herb thyme has incredible anti-inflammatory benefits, especially with respect to the human brain. So oregano, thyme, rosemary also are uh, phenomenal herbs that you could add to the diet. And you can use copious quantities of these depending on the recipe. I mean, some people, you know, have a different uh, taste or appreciation for these as opposed to, you know, some individuals are, are really turned off by things like oregano. But in their case, they have to just, you know, try to find a, an herb that's a better fit. So those would be, you know, just off the top of my head, some of the, the better choices that people have that are, I think, are widely available, Mark, to most people. Yeah, yeah, super. Now, where can people find out more about you personally if they want to sort of get hold of you for uh, consultations, yeah. speaking gigs, or that sort of thing? Sure. I mean, I have a website. It's johnbagnulo.com. Um, you know, there's a limited amount of information out there about me, but I, uh, I've had a Facebook page over the you know, last couple of years that I try to post interesting uh, studies on. I, in the last couple of months, though, Mark, I have taken a you know, leave of absence. I talked about the importance of unplugging, and I have been spending a lot of time with my family uh, in the mountains, you know, hiking and, and really being immersed. And now I'm coming back into the office here after two-month leave of absence, so it'll be easier to get in touch with me. Um, but, you know, whether it's through one of the organizations I work for, such as uh, Functional Formularies, where I, you know, I play a day-to-day -day role as Director of Nutrition, or as I, as I mentioned earlier, I serve as a core faculty member for the Center for Mind-Body Medicine uh, and, and teach regularly at places like uh, the 1440, uh, 1440 University is out in Santa Cruz, California. 
uh, Kripalu, which is here on the East Coast in the States. So these are all ways that you could learn more about a program that I teach and, 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 and reach me in one way or another. Super job. What would you say to vegan and vegetarians regarding their health, their diet? You know, I understand why people, because as I mentioned earlier, myself, I practiced vegetarianism for a while when I was in graduate school. I would say to those individuals that I understand if it's from, you know, whether it's, you know, some people eat this way because they don't believe in taking the life of, a, of, of another creature. Other people have been led to believe that this is the healthiest, you know, way that we can eat. And, and I understand, you know, again, for either reason why people have adopted this uh, component of lifestyle. But Alan, I would say to these individuals that it has not been part overall of the human experience. Uh, our ancestors relied pretty heavily on animal foods, animal-based foods. And when you start to take a look at particular nutrients, and I'll just give one as an example here because I know we have limited time, zinc. Where is it an individual will acquire, if they're a vegetarian or a vegan, a highly bioavailable, that means the body can actually absorb it readily, source of zinc. And people will always say things like pumpkin seeds or navy beans and, or wheat germ is one of the worst examples. And in all of those situations, the answer is there may be zinc in those foods, but it's not bioavailable because of the presence of phytic acid or phytates. Mm. And, and then there are other examples too. So I, I always say with vegetarianism or veganism, just a word of caution is that I understand why individuals, again, practice that way of life. But I've seen too often in my career individuals who have had a variety of different symptoms that you could attribute to micronutrient deficiencies or to overall imbalances in uh, the way they're eating, uh, amino acid intake, and they you know, end up with things like collagen deficit disorders. There's, there's really a, a lot that we could talk about in this area, but I, I often offer caution if people are open uh, to listening, and I'll say, you know, what are there for foods that you are more open to introducing, whether it's an oily fish or maybe shellfish people feel more comfortable introducing, or a high-fat dairy product if they're a vegan, so that they may acquire you know, some of those nutrients that tend to uh, be more well-represented in a grass-fed animal. But again, it's, you know, I always try to say to people, I, I understand this is, for me personally, it's been an evolution, Alan. So I was a vegetarian, I was a vegan um, for health reasons. And the more and more I uh, embarked on this inquiry on an, on an N equals one basis, just looking at my own health and how I felt and how I performed in athletics, um, it became really clear to me that vegetarianism and veganism was really not for me, and then I did much better when I had more animal protein. So I, you know, I just try to share my own personal experience, but I also will help people understand that there are certain nutrients you just can't get uh, readily from a vegan diet. Right. Some, uh, some of the other more obvious would be like of iron and uh, B12. Absolutely. Right. And those typically we get from animal protein. Absolutely. Okay. Do you want? Uh, did you want to add anything or any additional comment? No. There's uh, there's really nothing that I can think of at this time that I would add to this, other than I I think it's really important for people who are interested in improving their health to not be afraid to experiment with a new way of eating. Oh, right. Too often, people are stuck or entrenched in dogma. They, as we, you and I started this, you know, this process, this interview, uh, we talked about how people find it very difficult to uh, consider a high-fat diet as an alternative. And you know, whether it's high-fat or it's you know, having red meat or 
you know, some area, some other area of nutrition, I always encourage people to experiment because, you know, if you're asking the important questions, you'll quite often, through a little bit of trial and error, you'll come up with the answers. Great. Thank you again, John, for being on the Low Carb Paleo Show. And as we say in Texas, à votre santé, y'all. My pleasure, Alan. Yep, thanks for being here, John. Thank you, Mark.